listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? afternoon, night, whatever time of day you happen to be listening to uh, the show. Welcome, my name is Morris, you're listening to episode 53 of Love That Album, the music discussion and album discussion podcast, and my special co-presenter on this show, it's it's a strange paradox because this is a fellow who has been associated with the show for most of its running life, and yet Apart from a couple of shooting the shit specials, he's never sort of been across a whole show. And uh, if you've been a long time listening to the show, you'd obviously know I'm talking about Mr. Eric Reanimator-Peterson. Good morning to you, Eric. Good morning. It's uh, really wonderful to be able to have you on the show. And just, you know, here we go, talking one-on-one. Um, oh, uh, for, for those first. In- yes, indeed. In case you are new to the show, let me explain now. Eric normally submits... Um, a, a segment called an album that I an album I love, and he basically does in seven or eight minutes what it takes me two hours to do. So he, he really compactness is the order of the day. And um, I really dug, I don't remember what was the first show that you submitted something. For, oh wow! But, but you, you you submitted an album. And it was like you know I said oh I'd like some feedback and. Your way of feedback was not to say, hey, I'm digging the show, or I want to ask you a question about what you do. It's like your way of feedback is, well, you're talking about albums you love. Let me tell you something I love. And I just thought the effort that you went to was so wonderful. And that's when I contacted you. You said, keep doing it. Keep doing it. And you've been, you know, a really strong part of the show. I think it was either the Ultra Bimbos or... Um, social Distortion was probably the first one. One of those two. I, Cause, I, cause, I, so I, I know the Ultra Bimbos, uh, Bimbos was fairly early on, but I don't think it was the first. But it certainly was fairly early on, and I, I've not looked back. That, that album, that just that kills me. I absolutely love that album. And I know that there have been a few people in the group who've, um, who've gotten onto it. Certainly a few guys in the Feed My Ears space, I think, have uh, mentioned that they really dig it now, too. Yeah, Bimbo Wizards, I, I've long said, is my uh, favorite record of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it was just so, uh, I don't know, it just, it just, to me, imperfectly encapsulated what, what that, uh, but what's going on in the music scene and, and uh, kind of, to me, it's, it's kind of the capstone of this high energy scene that my brother and I were involved in, right. where uh, all these, these elements of earlier sounds came, came together in a, uh, in a cohesive sound that, that had a perspective. Well, and, it, uh, it, it works for me. It, it just sounds like such a timeless album. I mean, it, it encapsulates yeah. what you're talking about with the 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 power, you know, modern modern power in an album, mm-hmm. and yet, but re- some really great melodies and harmonies. And that, for me, is you know, just ultimately real, you know, a perfect sound. You know, this, this whole thing. I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm a big rave on power pop, and mm-hmm. that to me is just it's a great power pop album, and that to me sounds totally oh, It could have come out in the 2000s, it could have come out in the in the 70s, it could have come out in the 80s, albeit with 
with you know rotten production values but that's true <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah no the music is great and uh no so between so the, the two biggies for me out of what you submit and there have been a few things which i thought i really like that i really like that but the, the, between that and the soundtrack of our lives oh yeah um, i've been hugely you know in in debt to you for um for introducing me to those to those uh bands it's just absolutely wonderful well i'm glad because to me the whole point of doing uh any kind of of show about examining uh some album is to share it with people and absolutely. to open it up and that was one of the things about that whole high energy nordic scene that i loved was that people were not afraid to say oh i like abba and i like johnny cash and i like weezer and i like you know um Thin Lizzy or whatever else, and try to share it with each other. And it seems like so many rock scenes are more about we only listen to this, this, and this. You know, do you, do you have the Crass album? Do you have the Rudimentary Penny album? That's all you need. You know, that kind of stuff. No, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. Now that's uh, that's been the beauty of podcasting. And as as we've gone and spoken about before, you know, with uh, uh, the whole GGTMC community, it really <laughs> is something where everyone's sort of saying, "You haven't seen that." Wow, let me introduce it to you rather than you haven't seen that, you're not worthy of being in our group. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's all, all been wonderful and really we, that's what we try to do with this show is, uh, introduce, I mean, yeah, there have been a whole lot of albums that, you know, I've talked about on the show, which, you know, I know are common and a lot of people have enjoyed, mm-hmm. but I just sort of thought, well, here's my perspective, share with me yours and, and, but I'm really sort of, I've learnt a hell of a lot from uh, people like yourself and from John Ross and from our good compadre, no, thank you. Tim, Tim Merrill and, and Rodrigo, you know, with, uh, you know, digging out on new jazz albums that I hadn't mm-hmm. heard. So it's just, yeah, one really great community. Boy, this is getting to be a real fan fest over here, isn't it? Um, five minutes in, and we haven't even said what it is that we're talking about. Um, so you came to me, well, well, rather when I when I invited you to come on the show, and I said, yeah. right, well, what album would you like to discuss? And well, you tell the folks what your choice was. I picked uh, "Raw Power" by Iggy and the Stooges. Mm. Now, my first reaction was, well, I'm a big fan of the first two, but I had not listened to the third one, and you said all the more reason why we need to talk about it. And I thought, yeah. okay, it was a it was a fair call. And then um, I said, all right, well, I'll pick the partnering album, and I picked Alice Cooper's album Keller. And your first reaction was, I didn't know that you're an Alice Cooper fan. And there yes. I say, well, I'm full of surprises. Now I'm I'm glad that I picked this one. I mean, obviously because it really is an album that I adore. But I found something very interesting only in the last couple of days. Um, okay, so by the time this goes to where it'll be a couple of weeks down the track. But um, when we're recording this, it's November the 3rd. And mm-hmm. two days ago, it, November the 1st, was my birthday. And I found out from the College of Rock and Roll Knowledge that this album, Killer, was released in 1971 on my birthday. So I didn't plan it like this, but it, my birthday weekend, and I'm talking about an album that was released on, on my birthday. So I'm, I'm And happy birthday to you, by the way. Thank you kindly, sir. Thank you. Uh, so, um, yes, we're going to uh, have a bit of uh, Alison Iggy talk tonight, and... It'll be, um, I think, probably before we go to our first break, let's have a little bit of uh, talk about these can, can, because. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Can, can we uh, can we take just a minute here to remember Lou Reed, who uh, kind of fits nicely in with the Iggy and the Alice. I figured talk. that we would, as as we're talking about this. Uh, I think it's been what was it, a week or so, or a little under a week. It's since, been, so. yeah. I think it was maybe Halloween, which might be fitting. It was either Halloween or Devil's Night that he passed. One of the two. 
I th- uh, no, hang- oh, no, no, it would be a bit longer. Than- I think it was, was oh, the- maybe October 24th, 25th or something like oh, okay. that. Yeah, anyway, so yeah, the last three days anyway, yeah. So, yes, uh, you know, Lou Reed of the uh, the Velvet Underground, who, you know, uh, I always I always kind of put Lou Reed in that, that same era and that same kind of, um, I don't know, musical history as, as, as definitely Iggy and Alice are part of. Right. You know, he outsider musician who was able to, um, well, able to, to get some popularity and find a fan base and then continue on uh, with his career despite, uh, you know, commercial ups and downs. So, mm-hmm. and, and somebody who definitely brought, uh, you know, lyrically things that people weren't talking to, talking about into popular music and, um, you know, it just, kind of stirred the pot and you know gave the finger to the world and all that great stuff and we uh i, I fear we don't have as many people like that around anymore right and i i, I fear that uh that the young people don't really get what it means to give the finger to the man so <laughs> I, look i i i think that if there's one thing that i guess i've learned from you know from uh segments like yours or from uh, mm-hmm. albums that you know other people might have recommended because it's really the the world today in terms of music you know with the big companies sort of you know under fire and I, I mean I don't know maybe crumbling is overstating it but with the big co- the big companies certainly not having the monopoly that they once had there's mm-hmm. a whole lot more opportunities for you know people to go and put out music independently and I think that in a way that they're able to do that free of the constraints of the big companies and they're able to sort of do something that they want to do is in a in that sort of way even if it's not necessarily that they're lyrically singing about giving the finger to the man or whatever but in a way that mm-hmm. just just by being able to play the music that they want on the terms that they dictate for themselves uh, and they'll they'll pay someone to do the distribution for them and they'll do the hard yards but there's no compromising their creativity more people can do that 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 is enough in the spirit of Lou Reed and you know uh, of people like uh, Iggy and the Stooges as well I think in in, uh, in the yeah. day and age unfortunately I guess because everyone's doing it it means that there's so much out there we're spoiled for choice and there's people who who are worthy of being heard who we're probably you know never going to hear or, or unless you know someone that you know and trust will say hey dig this it's really worth your time but otherwise unfortunately a lot of people are going to get passed by but at least they're you know, people are doing what makes them happy, and they're not having to necessarily answer as much to uh, uh, you know, a production company or to a yeah. record company. So, but yes, no, uh, but I see what you're saying about Lou Reed in terms of uh, uh, you know, musically being able to do what he wanted. Because I mean, I was listening earlier on today to uh, uh, Transformer, and you know, you got you know songs like songs like Vicious, but uh, then you've got a song like Goodnight Ladies and you're going to get mm-hmm. you know, something which is you know, quite rocky at the start and something like, uh, sounds like German cabaret at the end of it. And um, I, I've always loved the fact that you know, a, a bass player who I've long loved, um, uh, Herbie Flowers, who was in uh, the group Sky in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, he, he, was, um, he was a tuba player which he'd learnt to do while in, I think, uh, the British... Army Corps or something like that. He'd because uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know you, you can't be in the uh, music corps playing a double bass. So he pulled the tuba out of uh, <laughs> uh, out of uh, rations and uh, he learnt to play that. But he also brought that into um, his uh, session work as well. 
very funny guy. But anyway, yeah, you know, so um, yeah, that album in its own. We we like to talk about the progression of given artists and uh, how they change from album to album, and the better artists will find that their fan base will follow them. They'll allow them to make that change and not say, hey, we don't want to hear the old stuff. Lou Reed's fans definitely were saying, all right, yeah. we trust you enough to go somewhere different and we'll follow what you do. But even on an album like that, he's doing different things on that one album. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's diverse enough and yet it still sounds cohesive. Yep. So um, so anyway, yep, Lou, we, we salute you. We miss you. Um, but, uh, you know, fortunately he left such a large back catalogue uh, and I know that there's still a whole heap of albums that I haven't listened to. So, so <laughs> me, um, me either, to be so, honest. I, I've, you know, I've, I've just kind of dipped my toe in that, in that right. whole well. Right. I mean, well, so, well, um, well, maybe we should, uh, you know, uh, go back to uh, some of the ones that we haven't listened to and uh, come back and compare notes for a future LTA. I think. Yeah, maybe, maybe we, uh, maybe we should, yeah, something. Excellent. All right, look, let's maybe go to a break after all, come back and we'll do a bit of uh, general Iggy and Alice talk before going uh, specifically into their albums. You're listening to Love That Album with uh, Morris and Eric Reanimator talking about Alice Cooper's Keller and Iggy and the Stooges' Raw Power. We'll be back in a moment. American Dream He's just a common man the American Dream, Dusty Rose Davis. I'm coming to you live and in living color. Speak to you, the American people. A podcast called Silver and Gold Daddy. And you know that the American Dream, Dusty Rose, knows how to bring home the gold, Daddy. And just like Henry Silva. Sticking Barbara Boucher's head inside a sow hanging from the ceiling. Silver and gold will stick it to you. Stick it to your ears. Stick it to your mouth, your eyes, your nose, daddy. And all points in between, they'll take your listening pleasure and stick it between a sow's carcass hanging from the ceiling, daddy. Silver and gold. We talk about movies and sh. Find us on iTunes or silverandgold.com. And we're back from break. Morris here in Melbourne, Eric over in Ann Arbor, which, funnily enough, is Iggy Pops, a.k.a. Jim Osterberg's hometown. Yeah. Do you you feel a sense of Iggy in the air? Do you feel anything? Sometimes, sometimes. It's it's, uh, very strange. It's like any place... Things change and evolve, and Ann Arbor especially. Uh, I've said for years that I went away to college in 1991, and I, I came back uh, after changing schools and having to stick around an extra year for losing credits. And it was like the town tripled in size, tripled in price, and the kind of people that ran the place uh, had just changed from this this <clears throat> post Vietnam lefties to a bunch of rich suburbanites and uh, you know Iggy came out of that that kind of post hippie hippie era thing that was going on here and a lot of what the Stooges were about were definitely informed by what was going on in the town with University of Michigan and all of those kinds of things and today I just you know it's a different different time and a different culture and a different group of people running the show and 
it's it's about arrogance and affluence and which is a lot of stuff that I think Iggy was mocking. It's it's interesting because I had um I'm I'm embarrassed to say I didn't actually get around to finishing. I tend to do that a lot. I'll I'll get about two thirds of the way through a book, get distracted by something else, or be writing notes for the podcast, and and Mm -hmm. I'll come back to that when I go on holidays or something. But I I went through um, a good chunk of a book called uh, Open Up and Bleed, which was a biography of Iggy, and it sort of speaks a lot about you know the early days you know, as Jim Osterberg and he was very very mm-hmm. intelligent and it talks about Ann Arbor being a big university town and and uh, Jim was uh, re- he was voted the guy most lo- most likely to do academically well or to succeed yeah. and all that and but you know in the end it wasn't for him what he wanted to do was go play drums with the iguanas and and then you know eventually he meets up with the Ashton brothers and you know puts together the Stooges and he goes and writes these songs which, uh, you know, we're not talking about you know, writing deliberately obscure songs like mm-hmm. you know, someone like Bob Dylan might have done. He's writing these very basic, very raw songs and he's gone and created this persona or he's developed into this persona of Iggy Pop, which is, in a, you know, very much away from what people predicted of him. So I don't know if that was just sort of like, I'm going to go kick against the, uh, uh, kick against the bricks or, or I, I, I mean, the book can't really make a case either way for what it was that he, whether he was just rebelling against expectations or he just sort of found things more fun. But, um, in, cause you're, you're the one who, you're, um, obviously, so you've had a long passion for, uh, for Iggy and the Stooges and I presume mm-hmm. a good chunk of, uh, Iggy's solo career. Do you have any insights on where he went well, you know, from Jim Osterberg to Iggy? It is funny you say that because I actually, I came to the, to the Stooges and Iggy and Alice Cooper as well fairly late. You know, a lot of people that I grew up with knew about the Stooges and they, you know, they knew about Iggy Pop, but I didn't hear any of his music until I was a senior in college, mm-hmm. except maybe in passing. And most, most people were listening to his stuff as teenagers. And here I am like 23 years old and finally starting to, to listen and not being impressed in the very beginning mm. until I, I really got into, um, that high energy rock and roll scene, which is heavily influenced by, by the Stooges, and start going backwards to dig out the things that people are like, oh, this is where we we heard this, or this is where we heard that. Yep. Um, as as far as as what what it is that got him to, uh, to move away from you know being a, a promising U of M student, I think uh, probably the most telling thing is the story that that he uh, he relates a lot about going to see the Doors play at U of M mm. and Jim Morrison singing in a falsetto voice and pissing off all the meathead jock college kids that had turned out to hear Light My Fire mm. and, you know, the, these kind of these kind of tough guy uh, meatheads who were, were being, uh, you know, kind of mocked by Jim Morrison singing in this falsetto. And I think what Iggy says is that he saw the rise that, that – that doing something that small got out of these these kids whose lives were destined to, to be, you know, uh, you know, U of M kind of promises University of Michigan kind of promises this this future, you know, it doesn't, it, it's not a small institution. It's considered the Harvard of the Midwest. It's yep. the the school that uh, East Coast kids who can't get into the Ivy Leagues go to mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the times. And it's funny because I think they're going to be out in the middle of the sticks. And you know, we're a decent sized city, so. 
It's not like we got polar bears on our streets or anything. <laughs> but they, they all sh these days they all show up in these huge cars like they're going to be out in the woods or something. And you think, really? No, it's not not like that. But anyways, I think uh, probably he saw the, you know, for lack of a better word, the bullshit of the the American dream or what the Amer what the punks would later call the American nightmare. This you work hard, you you get the gold watch, you get the house and the kids and the you know the pension and all that stuff. And I think that. Uh, one of the things about Ann Arbor is that when you're on the outside in any way, shape, or form, no matter how smart you are, and, and Iggy's parents were not well off. He grew up in a trailer park, so he's definitely on the outside. When you're standing on the outside and you're looking in, you see just how bankrupt this this culture is and that it won't last and it's not sustainable. And I think the Ashton brothers were probably in, in the same boat. They were probably, I don't know what their parents did for a living, probably worked at the auto companies or some ancillary uh, outlet of the auto companies. And when you have that life, your choices are either you go work on the line or you get out at Dodge or you join the military or you, uh, you know, you do something creative. And so I think, I think probably he was just seeing the, the nonsense. He went, you know, Iggy went to U of M for a semester. Uh, I have a very good friend who also went to U of M for like a year because his parents made him. He, uh, he was a, bass player and he just did not work for this guy so what did he do he dropped out became a paramedic became a firefighter you know and has done this whole other thing with his life but there's this thing about ann arbor where it you know at different times you've been able to to do music and have a musical scene and uh be part of things and because it's located you know we're four hours from chicago we're five hours from cincinnati we're two hours from cleveland we're four hours from Toronto, where you know, forty-five minutes from Detroit. That that you have the ability to go to all of these midwestern towns to play music and be part of what's going on. Right. So, uh, I mean, that's that's available, and probably, uh, and we're probably this this kind of hangs over everything. Uh, Vietnam was a huge, huge thing. Right. And you know, growing up in Ann Arbor. You know, even in the 80s, all you heard was how Vietnam was, was the end of the world and how it destroyed everything and how, you know, somehow, somehow, even though most of Vietnam was fought under President Johnson, mm. the, the anger had been transferred to Nixon and it became this Nixon problem rather than the Johnson problem. Yep. And uh, so that was, that permeated the, you know, what was going on in the town at the time, all, you know, a decade longer than anybody else in the rest of America thought about it. So, uh, you know, all of those things, I think, probably mixed together. And then, obviously, you know, uh, if you're a musician and you you have that, that artistic need in your soul, that, you know, cutting, that nine-to-five job just isn't going to cut it, and you're going you're gonna to have to follow that muse. Right. Uh, and, so. he, he, and the book certainly did make the case that even while he was still getting all these predictions of being the, the boy most likely to, uh, you know, succeed in the conventional american dream sort of way he was uh, and he was you know clean cut and the and the boy who did well on the track but you know quite early on i think in in uh, high school what i guess what you guys call junior high school uh he was yeah. already learning how to play the drums and uh you know, and he was listening to lots and lots and lots of music so um yeah yeah so that that bug took over i guess like you know a lot of kids on the planet um well the other thing is that if if you're going to be a musician, especially today, but, but even then, 
that you have to have that drive and that will to succeed. You have to be able to, uh, you know, not just accept doing, I don't want to say the minimum, but a little bit more than the minimum, which is, let's be honest, what most of us do. Most of us, we go to work, we do what we have to do, and we come home and we screw around with a few hobbies, but we don't necessarily push the the artistic part of it as like a second job. Mm. I have a very good friend in, uh, in Minneapolis who plays in a shock rock band called Impaler, and they've been around since the early 80s, and he always says, you know, it, it's really hard work keeping a band going because you, it's basically a second job. He's like, you know, I've got a job that pays the bills. I've got a wife and kids. I take care of my family. But then I have this other thing that I do that, that you know, requires a lot of uh, intent, you know, intense energy and focus. And, you know, his it, whole it, thing. It, is, he's running a company. I mean, that's effectively yeah, what it is. Basically. And you have to be driven to do that. You can't, you can't just want to hang out and drink beer and smoke and whatever else uh, to to do that. So, hmm. um, so just very quickly before we start talking about the albums themselves, um, I started having a look into uh, briefly into another book, uh, and it, it, the title of it is called "This Ain't the Summer of Love" by a guy called I think Steve Waxman. Okay. Uh, and its subtitle is Conflict and Crossover in Heavy Metal and Punk. I might actually uh, get you a copy and send it to you because um, I think this book will be very much up your alley. But there's a whole chapter in it devoted to uh, Alice and Iggy. Uh, they, yeah. They saw there was enough. There was enough in uh, similarities to to warrant this comparison, but also enough divergences. And I, there was one section in it that I thought was really, really interesting because, um, okay, so I, I guess there was plenty of discussion in, in the chapter on uh, the the way how they look, you know, their sexuality and androgyny and the machismo and the blurred lines they shared leading into glam. Uh, but it, it spoke also about the violence and intensity of their shows. But the main difference that the book makes a point of, I, I guess this seemed intuitive to me, but... Uh, they said that um, with Alice Cooper, what he ran was a very carefully orchestrated show. There were yes. you know, gallow poles, executions, oh, executioners, guillotines, snakes, and other implements of torture. And mm-hmm. following the show's end, Alice and the band would, well, I should say Vincent and the band would pack up and do it all again the next night. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, you in the audience, you know, you get this catharsis of seeing this, ex- this show build up, Alice do all these weird things on stage, and then get his come up and set the end of the show. But it was it was basically musical theatre, whereas yeah. with Iggy, every night was something different. The Stooges didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't know what he was going to do. Someone, I mean, okay, what the, the one thing that would be predictable is that he was going to try and provoke the audience. And there was, you know, the famous tales of him, uh, you know, giving it to the Hells Angels and mm-hmm. uh, them beating the shit out of him and him rubbing uh, broken glass, smashing broken glass onto his chest. And uh, he's not, he's not singing about gruesome tales of murder. He's singing about, you know, songs of, Songs of sex and songs of uh, well, I, okay, there were there were there were you know there were songs of frustration, I guess as well. But basically, he's not he's not building worlds. I mean, Alice Cooper's songs, as we'll get into shortly, were were stories, at least you know certainly around yeah. this album, Keller. Whereas you know Iggy's <coughs> uh, uh, face a lot of what he's singing, uh, we you don't listen to a Stooges album 
for the lyrics. Uh, I mean, maybe you could also. I don't like, know about that. Well, I, we'll, we'll we'll get into that. Okay, but right, yeah, well, but but certainly it, it was it was more immediate, and it was not a piece of theatre, even though. It, it was very theatrical, I imagine, had you been there to, to, to watch it. But it was, you know, Iggy was out there to provoke. He wasn't out there to give you a carefully orchestrated piece of, um, of theatre. So, uh, yeah. it, it was, it was really fascinating to read this chapter of this book. And as I said, I'll, I'll grab you a copy and uh, send it over because I really think it's something you'll dig. Cool. And, so anything else you want to bring up before we go into, uh, album specifics? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, just, just two things that, uh, you know, the similarities between Iggy and Alice, you know, you talked about, uh, they, you know, they're both using a, uh, a pseudonym, a moniker, right? Uh, they're both, they're both playing a character. Yes, yes, yes. They're, uh, they're both definitely deal with, uh, androgyny as a way of antagonizing the crowd. Hmm. Um, I think that both of them are, are agents provocateur. They're both, both very much trying to, to, you know, give the finger to the man or, you know, poke the, whatever you want to call it, the society. So to, the, uh, the musical equivalents, a, a, a genera- well, a, a decade on from Lenny Bruce. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're both. And then, you know, I was looking at the album covers for Killer and Raw Power and Killer has a snake on the cover. Yep. And so does Raw Power, basically. <laughs> well, I mean, now that you put if, it like that, yes. If you look at Iggy on that cover. Yep. You know, he very much does look like a serpent of some kind. When you, you know? when you say it, it, it makes complete sense. I hadn't thought of it till now, but yeah, absolutely, I agree with that. So, I mean, they're they're an interesting uh, interesting pairing, and they're. Uh, I mean, I don't know what what else in in uh, the musical world, as far as uh, like an axis of of a scene that you can you can compare these two guys to. I don't know if there's anybody from. From the '80s, where you could say, "Oh yeah, that that guy was kind of you know the Iggy role, and that guy's the the Alice role," mm-hmm. and I definitely don't know from the '90s. I mean, you might say that, uh, that you know, that if you want to say Marilyn Manson is Alice Cooper and Rob Zombie's Iggy Pop, even that's not quite quite right. Right. But I mean, so it you know, it's only in the uh, the early '70s that these two guys really could have come to the fore as uh, as musical icons. The other thing is, I, I didn't know about Iggy running track, but famously, uh, Alice Cooper was was a, a track runner in high school. No, that I, the, that I didn't know. I don't know really much about his um, about his background apart from the fact that I think his big hero was uh, uh, his big comedic hero is Groucho Marx, which I have oh, no, yeah. well, no trouble believing whatsoever. And his musical heroes, sorry, Eric, were the Beatles. So um, <laughs> you know, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, uh, yeah, go on. Yeah. So uh, the the idea that both of these guys were were runners and the story that Alice has told about uh, running track is the coach said that you know he there was nothing about about Vincent that was going to suggest that he was going to be a a uh, great track runner but you know as we were talking about he he just had that drive he just he pushed himself and he made it happen so mm-hmm. all right well that's that's about it about the two of them I, I'm ready to uh, get into this whenever you are. All right. Okay. So we'll go uh, quickly to another break. Um, more breaks in this show, I think, than they're going to be in a normal show. But, but uh, you know, let's um, 
we can do that. We can promote more more podcasts. So uh, we'll go to another podcast break, and we'll be back shortly. We'll uh, go in chronological order. We'll talk about Alice Cooper's Killer album, which was, as if I haven't already mentioned, released on November first, nineteen seventy-one, forty-two <laughs> forty-two years ago. So uh, we'll be back very shortly. You're listening to Love That Album with Eric and Morris. Speak to you shortly. <laughs> This is the ghost of the King of Comics, Jack Kirby. When I'm not haunting Stan Lee, I'm listening to my favorite comic book podcast, Double Page Spread. Each week, Wendy Freeman talks to creators like Cullen Bunn, Mark Wade, Evan Dorkin, and more. She is one cool dame who knows a lot about comics. So when I'm at my drawn board in heaven cranking out fourth world pages, I'm listening to Double Page Spread. Available on iTunes, Libsyn, and the Stitcher Network. The telephone is ringing. You got me on the run. I'm driving in my car now. Anticipating fun. I'm driving right up to you. Babe. I guess that you couldn't see me again. Yeah. But you were under my Welcome back to Love That Album, episode 53, Eric in Ann Arbor, Morris here in Melbourne. And the first album for formal discussion on uh, the episode, and just general thoughts about uh, the man himself, or the, the band themselves, you should say, is uh, Alice Cooper and their 1971 album, Keller. I don't know about you, Eric, but it, the first time I sort of did a bit of reading up on... Uh, the history of Alice Cooper, so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and in 1975 when he went solo and released his album "Welcome to My Nightmare," I thought, "Hang on, what do you mean he went solo? There's all these other albums by mm-hmm. Alice Cooper, and I didn't realize that these earlier albums were all Alice Cooper it's... the band." And he even started, yes. I think, the first album or two. He was still listed as Vincent Furnier. It wasn't until after a while that they decided, "No, you'll take on the name of the band." And uh, yeah, uh, so oh, and. Like earlier, they earlier there had been the uh, what's become now the the usual '60s uh, garage rock background of bands with names like the Naz and the Spiders and stuff like that. Right, right. So that was that. Um, so the Naz was like his earlier band. Oh, not not the not the um, not the Todd Rundgren Naz, but he did. A no, band no, no. It, it was it was a, they were they were he was out of Phoenix at the time, and the, the band was called the Naz. And I think one of the reasons they changed their name was because of the Todd Rundgren band. So. Right. Which was fairly fairly common, you know. You had these regional scenes where every every regional scene would have a band called, you know, some variation of the Birds or the Lions or whatever. And as as it became better known, you realize that hey, there's that band, you know, three states over with the same name. It's probably uh, you know fortunate that they were forced to do that anyway because yeah. uh, you know he he might have still he might have still gone and changed his name to Alice Cooper, but it would have always been of the Naz, whereas this was a lot more easily identifiable. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, my first memory of hearing um, Alice was, I guess, like a lot of people, uh, Welcome to My Nightmare. And I think 
back in oh, yes. 90, back in 1975, I was, I mean, I was, you know, still you know, quite young. Um, I was only just starting to pay attention to uh, rock music because basically for most of my childhood, I'd really only, I'd been surrounded by classical music. My father mm-hmm. uh, immigrated to Australia, well, my, my whole family immigrated to Australia. I was the only one who was born here. And uh, my father, you know, in his, uh, uh, in his youth, you know, he, he had a strong love of uh, opera and tenor singing and classical music in general. So that permeated its way through the family. So I always knew a lot of classical music. Mm-hmm. And you know, my older sisters were you know, big, I guess, into the, uh, the the American folk scene. So I guess you know, I was allowed a little bit of Simon and Garfunkel and the like. But you know, rock music. I mean, my my elder sister was. Um, no, 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 no! Don't go listening to rock music. No, no, that's that's not right. <laughs> and then you know, my you know, I had I had the big epiphany of the Beatles' "Twist and Shout" when a friend came round and brought it out, you know, played it to me years after the fact. But when I started listening to Top 40 radio. There were, you know, a whole bunch of songs that just stayed with me, but one of those songs was "Only Women Bleed." Now, as really, wow, as uh, it's funny that you know this is played on the radio. You wonder whether that would be allowed to be played on the radio nowadays. Now, even as a uh, a nine-year-old or ten-year-old or however old I was at the time when it came out, I didn't know what it meant in its literal sense, and yet for yeah. some reason I was still too embarrassed to go down to my local record shop and ask for the 45. Uh, so, uh, can I? Can I buy the? Can I, I just knew there was something not right about it, but I didn't know what it was, and I wasn't going to ask. Uh, of course, you know when you go into the song, you know about about marital or about spouse abuse, um, yeah. and, and it serves as a good metaphor. But really, as a nine or ten year old, I wasn't exposed to such thing. I didn't know what what all that meant, uh, and I think I ended up buying Kiss's "Rock and Roll All Night" instead. But I still have that single lying around somewhere. Uh, so your first memory of hearing Alice Cooper what was your first album wow. or song you know I, I, Alice is, is definitely one of those those uh, kind of boogeyman uh, performers much like Iggy who you know as, as a child in elementary school you heard all these wild rumors about you know uh, Ozzy Osbourne was another one that just mm-hmm. you know that just all the rumors went off the chart and you look back now and you're like really 10 year olds or 8 year olds were talking about this but I probably heard Schools Out uh, somewhere along the way because it right. was, you know, it was pretty prevalent in in, uh, in the mass culture. As, as far as the first time I remember hearing or, or noting Alice was, you know, during the 80s with the song Poison, which was, you know, from his, I guess you could call hair metal era. Yep. Because that was all over MTV when I was a teenager for a while. And it, it took me a long time to, to get to the point with Alice where I was like, all right, I'm into all this this horror rock stuff, I really need to go back and check out Alice Cooper. And, um, you know, for, for me, it, it was it was just archaeology. It was going and digging everything out and putting the connective tissue together of the story. Mm. So, you know, and probably the first Alice Cooper thing I ever got was uh, the, uh, the Greatest Hits, which uh, I got the CD issue of the 1974 Greatest Hits, which I know is to this day considered to be one of the greatest hits compilations ever released. Yep. So basically it was it was the hits and you know I think for somebody like Alice whose catalog can sometimes be impenetrable if, if you're if you're not up to it uh, that the greatest hits is probably the, the best place to start. Yep. And to be honest I didn't even keep that CD. I sold it somewhere along the way because it didn't grab me enough to want to wanna keep it around. Mm. So um, 
and I had to come back to Alice later uh, on down the road probably with uh, one of his 90s albums uh, Lost in America okay. it's probably the first one that I, I bought and Captain uh, really got into so yeah it was for me it was a much later kind of a thing and uh, it definitely you know looking at it now I see that the, those later albums weren't anything that I would consider you know uh, great I mean there was some good music on there but you have to go back to this early 70s period to find Alice in his prime right right I mean, look, the thing was, even though, uh, like, I, I'd really gotten into at the time, you know, I, I eventually went out and got a copy of Wel to, Welcome to My Nightmare, I think, on tape. Mm -hmm. um, and he was always prevalent, you know, he, he was on the Muppet Show. I remember watching him on the Muppet yeah. Show at the time. And um, uh, I, I think another big single, at least down here, was, you know, sometime in the late 70s from uh, on the inside was uh, How You Gonna See Me Now, you know, the big ballad sort of thing, which was, I guess, atypical of what the albums were all about. But, you know, yeah. I still thought at the time, you know, an absolutely gorgeous song, but taken out of context of the rest of the album. I, you know, as a kid, once again, not really focusing that much on what it was really all about or out of the, the wider context of what From the Inside was about. But I, I guess you know, I, I'd gotten a couple of albums at the time, but hadn't sort of really followed up until in you know, recent years, my my son Max, who'd uh, you know, become you know, something of an Alice Cooper fan, and he sort of pushed me into buying you know a few more albums because he wanted to know more about it. And um, really, you know, the, and one of the albums was the album that we're discussing tonight, uh, mm -hmm. Killer. And I just found myself. I mean, I, I like some of these other ones like Love It to Death and uh, Alice Cooper Goes to Hell, uh, and you know, Schools Out and Lace and Whiskey. But yeah. this one was the one that I just sort of kept coming back to. It, it has that great combination of out-and-out -out rock. I'd even make a strong argument for uh, you know the album uh, opener, Under My Wheels, as being sort of something like... It's a song that could have worked well for another artist on the Stax label. There's just yeah. something of a soul feel, those great horn section stabs. And it's just, it's a diverse album. And as, as you would know from you know, previous shows, I love mm -hmm. a song with a story. And this album, no pun intended, has a lot of killer stories on it. Yeah. Um, and I, I just love the storyteller in them, but the music is great. And on the, the previous episode of Love That Album, where I was speaking um, uh, with, uh, with John Ross and Tim Merrill about the Portishead album and, and uh, Massive Attack, and we're speaking about whether, because I had problems, as, well, more with the Massive Attack, not so much with Portishead, mm -hmm. but I was thinking, is the music, does the music have to be context-based? Because I really didn't appreciate it, but I thought, well, maybe if it was played in the film, I would think it was more effective. Does it need a visual stimulus? Do I need to see it more in that light to be able to appreciate? Because I wasn't appreciating it so much as music by itself. And you would think, given that so much of what Alice and band or, or Vincent and band if you want to put it like that because it really was a band um, so much of what they did was so very visual and so very theatrical would this music work without being able to see what they were doing and certainly after playing these albums and this one is the one we're talking about multiple mm -hmm. times I would say for 100% it works independently of what they were doing on stage but I tell you what I'd love to know if there's a bootleg or even an official uh, DVD out there of one of those uh, killer era shows because man I'd love to see what they did with those with some of these songs yeah I 
you know, I, I've actually seen Alice in the last, I don't know, it's been probably half a decade now. Yep. And, uh, and the stage show isn't what it was in the in the uh, the late seventies, but it would be interesting to see what what they were doing at this point with, and you know the uh, the stage show, also because they weren't at this point this huge rock band that they became. Right. So. Um, so I, I, I guess everyone out there who's listening to this show will you know, have some picture in their head of uh, what Alice is. You know, being doesn't matter how old you are with your, you know my age or your age or younger mm-hmm. you've got a picture in your head from you know Wayne's World or or, or you know what you remember of uh, you know, whatever video footage you've seen of the yeah. Welcome to My Nightmare show but basically you know so we all know that he's he does the um, the, the horror thing but uh, definitely you know with a wink in his eye and he's definitely got a great sense of humour um, apparently what I didn't realise that you know he got his idea for his macabre makeup from uh, the Betty Davis character and whatever happened to Baby Jane, so uh, I, found, I found that was a, like an interesting little uh, trivia thing there. But um, well, he, real- he's d- definitely always been uh, very, very Hollywood uh, influenced. Definitely, right? right. Um, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he's, he's famous for all those things that you guess you'd see in those horror movies. You know, the guillotines and the spiders and the boa constrictors and yeah. hangings and you know, all that macabre makeup, but. You know, really, as as I've gone and said, you know, this album is every song for me. There's there's no filler on this album. Every song works, and you can. The, the beauty of it is you can put your own picture in your head of what you see because he's such a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess so. We should also mention the names of the band because you know, really, this was a band album. So yeah. you had uh, Glenn Buxton uh, on lead guitar, Michael Bruce on rhythm guitar. Uh, Dennis Dunway on bass guitar and Neil Smith on drums as well as Vincent Fernier on uh, vocals and harmonica. Uh, yeah. And really they, I'd say, given especially our love of film and uh, you know, Alice slash Vincent's love of film, really all these, I've said that these are a whole bunch of stories, these really, I guess they're mini films if you will, and in particular like the song Halo of Flies, I mean that's That'd be right oh, yeah. up your alley. That's that's like a little mini film noir, isn't it? Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. It's it's um, you know, there's there's a there's a song on the previous album, "Love It to Death," the ballad of the white fry that I always right. I always get, get these uh, these two kind of pair with each other. And uh, "Love It to Death" is actually my my favorite of the the Alice Cooper band albums, and it came out the same year. So it's likely all of these songs probably came out of the same songwriting sessions, right? And in the maybe even I don't know if it's the same recording uh, time, but but quite possibly. And you know it, you know sonically the songs, you know you have your kind of uh, your up tempo ba- uh, rock songs, and then you have your ballads, and then you have these epics. And uh, you know I was reading about Halo of Flies. This was. Apparently, them trying to do something more progressive rock and right. King Crimson-ish, and very much so, very much. I, I, I was going to say it, it. You certainly make the prog rock uh, comparison, but and yet it it doesn't sound English. It doesn't because real. I mean, I I, I think oh, yeah. prog rock. I think is you know very much an English art form, it, and yet it, it does have. The, you can definitely make the case for it because it's got all these weird time changes, and I guess unlike something like Under My Wheels. 
it's not you know verse chorus verse chorus and you can predict where the music's going to go you know notwithstanding uh key uh key changes you know modulations yeah. and things like that it's like a little bit of this tune and then it goes into another tune and then a different time signature or something like that so it's a a, a little i don't know what maybe pete townsend would have called like a, a rock opera or something like that but yeah definitely definitely a progish there and and you're listening to so much stylistically on this and that was why i guess that was an, it must have been an exciting time in the early 70s because uh, yeah. you had as much for not what artists were willing to do but that radio would be willing to play it and you'd be able to get you know, something a, a song from an album like that which would be hard rock and then maybe a little bit of cabaret somewhere else mm -hmm. and they'd follow it up with a song by a different artist it could be you know james taylor it wouldn't it wouldn't be considered you know un, uh, it, it wouldn't be something that um the radio stations would shy away from it was just something that they did this is the music that's out there this is what we're going to play um so when I, when I was growing up, this would have been on, on what we refer to now as classic rock radio, yep. which um, in D the Detroit area is WCSX, which for years, and I don't know if they still do this, actually, Alice Cooper had his own program on WCSX. It was syndicated to other radio stations as well, but they were kind of his home station hmm. uh, because, you know, Alice was from Phoenix, but he was born in Detroit, and there was this kind of back and forth where he was coming to Detroit and actually the Alice Cooper band was based in Detroit for quite a while. Mm -hmm. So he had, has this, this tie to Detroit and uh, CSX being the, I probably was the, the rock station in those days and now it's the classic rock or at least last time I checked yep. that you would hear Alice Cooper and then you would hear I mean this is the 80s so they would play Rush or Led Zeppelin or Blue Oyster Cult or sure. you know that kind of thing and uh, that was that was also part of the mix, but one of the things that that they weren't afraid to do was play songs that were longer or more epic, and, yep. and definitely took more time than your three-minute pop song. Sure, sure. And now that sort of thing is left up. Well, I, I don't know what you call them over there. Maybe that's college radio, but over here, what we have uh, the public access stations. You know, where okay. pretty much people can play. You know, whatever they whatever they want. There's none of the um, uh, having to take into consideration, oh, well, we've got to put in an ad every 10 minutes. I mean, there are, well, there, are, there are public service announcements that have to be played, but it's like, oh, yeah, just play it when you get to it sometime in the next two hours or something. Yeah, with, with the exception of uh, college radio and some of our public radio stations, uh, American radio has been a big vacuous hole since, uh, since Bill Clinton and the Republican Congress signed the Telecom Act in 1996. And... That's all I'm going to say about that, or you'll get an hour rant on how the we boomers can't. sold out the country. Oh, so. no, no, we can't have that again. No, 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 no. We, we, we won't we, go we, into that. We did, we did a whole show on that, and then that got sabotaged by technology, so no, no, we can't, yeah. we can't do that again. So, uh, at any rate, yeah, uh, you, would have, you would have heard songs, and they would have, the other thing they would have done that you don't hear so often, or last time I listened to radio, was uh, they'd play the deep cuts from the albums. So, obviously, the, the big hits and the songs that people know from Killer are... Under My Wheels or Be My Lover. Hmm. Uh, Dead Babies is kind of infamous. Most people know of it but not have heard it. Yep. Killer and Desperado are the, the songs that um, that maybe are the next tier. So Halo Flies is definitely what they call a deep cut. But, uh, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, a classic rock radio station might have, might have been like, ah, oh, we're the only ones playing this deep cut. So here's Alice Cooper for, you know, eight minutes and 22 seconds. <laughs> That also meant probably the DJ could run out and use the restroom or, 
you know, get a drink or whatever. Right. You know, that's the kind of thing that got thrown on at three o'clock in the morning when they, you know, here's a uh, Halo flies and uh, you know some really long thing by Rush and then Jethro Tull so they could take a quick nap. We'll, kind we'll of go, a deal. We'll go play on the pinball machine in the foyer. Yeah. Right. Something like that. So this this is a very violent record. Uh, you know, there's songs about murdering one's lover, infanticide, which you've already mentioned, yeah. dead babies, state-sanctioned execution, and western shootout. Uh, pickups in bars leading to potential rape, uh, espionage, and teenage rebellion slash ingratitude, depending on which side of the fence you lean on. Yeah. Um, but, you know... and. Because of that, or in spite of that, there's just so much to like on this album. Uh, aside from uh, these hard rock songs, uh, there are songs that have great pop sensibilities and strong melodies. And, and I'd make a case that... Uh, okay, let's talk a little bit about Dead Babies. You mentioned that about being infamous, and it's probably more infamous from the perspective of people who've only heard the title or heard of its reputation. Uh, yeah. Two things I want to say about that, okay, fr- probably from a purely musical perspective, that actually, especially when it gets to the uh, the chorus, it's it's uh, two things it reminds me of. One is it's it, it sounds very Beatlesque. Uh, the the horns it reminds me something I guess of uh, uh, Penny Lane style of horn, um, and his voice sounds almost John Lennon esque uh, on that mm-hmm. song. But I guess, okay, being um, less vacuous, let's talk lyrically about this. The, the, the infamy that the song received, it really shouldn't have, because this is not uh, Alice sort of doing the whole shock rock thing, uh, or like trying to be a bad, nasty Alice. He's making definitely a statement, you know, a very rare statement, I guess, uh, on par- parental neglect of, yeah. uh, of their children. And, you know, when you really listen to what this is all about it's it's shocking but not shocking in the way that people sort of imagined Alice Cooper normally were no it, it's definitely uh, it's definitely I don't know if, if people are more shocked by the fact that that he's using this imagery to say that you know you, you need to take care of your kids hmm. or if they're shocked by the fact that somebody's actually calling them out for not taking care of their kids and you know what and I think I, th- I, I imagine miss- I imagine people weren't really listening and he said, yes, you have the bad taste oh. to sing a song called Dead Babies rather than yeah. being called out for being bad, bad parents. This is, it's, I mean, the, the, the reaction to this is the typical uh, kind of mindset of, oh, that sounds awful, so it must be awful. It's the, yep. you know, the people, people that are judging the book by its cover or are, you know, projecting their own insecurities onto it. And there's also, you know, there's just a certain amount of humor in this, and it's kind of Warren Zevon-esque in that. Yep, yep. That yeah, it, another, another songwriter with a black sense of humor. Yeah, exactly. And it's not, it's not promoting this, and it's not saying it's a good thing. It's not like, you know, the Talking Heads' Psycho Killer is, you know, promoting, uh, you know, promoting killers. It's talking about them. Or what was the Dead Kennedy song that Tipper Gore hated? Uh, well, all of them, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there was one one in particular that was from the point of view of a serial killer that she uh, went after. I mean, I was, I'm I, sure that... I think the, we spoke about this on Shooting the Shit recently, didn't we? Or, or maybe I spoke about it with Tim. Uh, I can't remember what it is. I'm, well, you know, Tipper Gore is, to me, the boogeyman of the 1980s. But that's, that's <laughs> once again, a different story. 
but that's the kind of mindset that oh, we're going to look at it at the surface and it's promoting dead children. And it's like, no, it's not. And if you would, uh, you know, pull that stick out of your ass, get a sense of humor, <laughs> and you know, listen to this with your kids and say, do you understand that that he's not promoting this? That he's saying this is bad. That you know, you probably get a lot farther in in, in dealing with uh, you know the next generation or whatever. And I, I think that one of the things about the early '70s, when you look at what was going on musically, that it was kind of this post peace and love man uh, point where people were either looking, were largely looking inward, and was the start of what's at least in America been tagged as the me generation with the kind of sensitive singer songwriter who's you know singing about you know whatever. Meanwhile, the audience is all graduating from college, getting jobs, having you know, not having kids at this point, they're still doing drugs, but um, they, uh, you know, they don't want this this kind of, uh, you know, somebody somebody calling them out for for you know not taking care of their uh, responsibilities. And right. I think that that while on on the surface they might be objecting to the imagery and oh, isn't that awful? I think that the probably the the unconscious psychological part is they don't want to have to be called out or held responsible for uh, you know for how they're dealing with children and infamously you know this is the era of uh you know the start of really what what became very much a disposable generation of latchkey kids were being born i mean this is this is the day i mean i was born in 1972 so i was born basically a year after this album came out mm -hmm. and when i look around at what was going on with my peers when we were growing up and the way we were treated and I look at some of the literature about how uh, our what parenting was at this point in time. There's definitely a lot more neglect than there had been in previous generations. And also, you know, it's, it's a fun song, and I'm sure that there was a lot of teenagers that like to sing it in the back seat of the car to piss their parents off. <laughs> really, that's what it's all about. Yep, yep. Um, and, and music, musically, you know, uh, one of the things that I picked up on listening to this record more so than in the past is the uh, the kind of Broadway musical theatricality of it. You it's know, that, interesting you mentioned that. I think definitely it's in there. Which, uh, which song is it? I think it's on um, Schools Out where they actually uh, uh, they incorporate the themes from um, one of the themes from uh, West Side Story. I think it's the... Yeah. Uh, was it the Sharks versus Jets or something like that? Oh, yeah. No, there's there's definitely a riff on that in one of... And I don't remember which album uh, I'm it pretty was. Sure, I'm pretty sure it's uh, School's Out. But, um, yeah, look, it's obvious because, you know, the love of theatre, the love of theatricality would go hand in hand with the love of musical theatre. Because really yeah. what he's doing is musical theatre, but for, you know, the modern generation. He said, well, we're not going to riff off The King and I. We're going to... Do something that's you know contemporary, and you know this is what you're used to. All right, well we'll give you songs in this vein, and we're going to talk about something considerably more black than uh, than you know whatever than any yeah. of the MGM musicals we're going to offer you. So um, this and, this is uh, the Evil Dead the musical before there was even the <laughs> Evil Dead, right? I, I've only heard rumor that there's an Evil Dead musical, so there really is. Is that it's not a yes. it's not a myth? Oh my gosh! It's and actually, one of the small town community theaters is doing that locally. That I just saw the sign and I had to shake my head and thought, "Really?" But no, it, it actually it actually exists. Oh, I'd have to see that. I, I really have to. If that if that comes, if someone decides they're going to put that on down here, I don't care. Bad, good. I just have to say, I've seen Evil Dead the musical. <laughs> There's got to be something in that. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about um, another song. 
okay. on the album, and that we're we're sort of like going moving away from the yeah. uh, song by song thing, but just talking about a couple of highlights. Actually, okay, before I go into the next song, I wanted to talk about. I thought it was an interesting uh, structure layout. I've already sort of gotten alluded to. There was you know some of the straight ahead rock, and some of the more adventurous, uh, or at least. Uh, weird time signature things you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, that he decided to do it and pretty much what he's done I think you know side what would have been side one and side two of the original vinyl the first two cuts on each side where you're more you know straight ahead rocky sort of things you know, with uh, touches of um, you know, hard rock or I think uh, one of the so- I guess uh, under my wheel sounds a bit like a, a cross between a, a, um, a faces song and a, and a stone song of that period yeah, uh, and uh, and then you got you know the last two cuts of either side where the more progish and hard rock sort of things, and the last song on the album, uh, which I, I'm I'm pretty sure that Nick Cave would be a big fan of, is um, is Killer, and mm-hmm. it's the last thoughts of a man on death row, and he like the character in the Mercy Seat, he doesn't deny that he's committed this murder, but he doesn't really admit that it was his fault. You know, once again, it's sort of like the Mercy Seat character. It starts off sleazy and then goes to this prog-like fashion into an instrumental coda where we get these drum rolls and an organ accompaniment of the character's walk to the chair. Like, it sounds a bit like uh, the Berlioz march to the scaffold. Mm -hmm. It all ends with this insane 30 seconds of guitar-induced white noises the criminal's brains are fried out. Now, in 1971, what... I, just imagine if you had been there listening to this album at the time. I, I know there was a lot of experimentation, a lot of wild stuff, but you would have been thinking, what the fuck have I just listened to at the time? It would have been insane. Yeah, well, you know, this is also... You can't divorce it from the context of the time. This is post-Altamont. This is post... Right. Uh, you know, the Manson killings. This is post... You know... uh student riots and you know once again vietnam and once again you know this is this is actually you know post richard speck and this is this is in the moment when uh that stew of of major serial killers that that are become the boogeyman of the 70s and 80s are coming to the fore so you know and at the same time you know we talked about alice being very much a uh you know, a pop entertainment Hollywood kind of fan. This is something that could have been in a film noir. I mean, there's how many, how many stories about the man on death row, you know, you go back to great prison films, you go all that kind of stuff. Hmm. And, uh, you know, all of that stuff is playing in and into and informing what, what Alice is putting on stage always. Right. Right. Um, I, I wonder, I wonder whether he read comics at all because he's oh i'm sure he did i'm sure he was an ec comics oh, of course well hang on yeah. wasn't it there, i think john ross mentioned that um uh it was released either with the album or in tandem with um uh with on the inside there might have been a, a comic book that was put out with alice as a character so quite uh, possibly i know that there was uh there was definitely an alice uh the last comics. temptation of alice or something oh yeah no that one definitely definitely and you know he he was always always had his finger on the pulse of that that pop culture with videos and you know everything that he was doing yeah yeah absolutely um so i mean look at it, but we've also discussed a little bit about um him having a strong sense of humor and 
as macabre as it is, I find we've already mentioned it a couple of times by name. Under my wheels, I f- it's a funny song. Um, it, it really shouldn't yeah. be about you know running over your um, your pushy lover, uh, but it's just something about it. Just I don't know. Maybe it's so, because it's it's delivered as an exciting up tempo major key rock song. It, it there's just something about it that makes it sound. Uh, blackly comic rather than a really serious dire sort of song i actually sort of often thought i mean it may it, it does sound musically like a song that should open an album but chronologically i reckon that be my lover is part of the same story but comes before under my wheels you know he picks up on this mm-hmm. woman uh in in um, in the bar and then she gets to be you know a nuisance to him and he's got her under the, yeah. under the wheel so um but, well, who yeah. knows? Maybe maybe that was originally intended to be that way, and you know, producers or studios or you know, record labels or whatever they they're like, oh, you know, that's that that's going to be the single, so we'll put that on first. So, um, look, I think I've pretty much sort of gone and said uh, most of what I wanted to say about the album in general. Um, okay. I, I just pretty much just wanted to say, yeah, I, I think this is uh, for me. This is probably my favourite of uh, of his albums. Uh, I mean, I, I like like you. I like a lot of those early ones as well. But this this one really holds special. It's had many repeat playings, and um, yeah, absolutely. If you like a variety of styles, then you're, you're going to get it here. If you like if you like melodic pop, you're going to get it. Oh, that's one thing I forgot to mention. We we're, were talking a little bit before about Dead Babies. There was another thing I wanted to say about that uh, from a musical perspective. I'm wondering whether Dario Argento. Uh, ended up listening to this record because you, that that whole child melody of um, where, where you hear um, at the end of the chorus, "Dead babies can't take things off the shelf," yeah. and you hear that that child, la 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 la, la <laughs> and it sounds to me like the opening of uh, Profonda Rosa. Um, so I don't know, maybe or maybe it's just a common thing for uh, to hear children's nursery rhymes. I don't know. I'd like I'd like, to, I'd like to think that Dario Argento is an Alice Cooper fan. And, well, it could it could, could also also be that you know those guys are roughly the same same age, so they were probably getting a lot of the similar pop culture inputs when they were children. Right. And sometimes that comes out similar, and sometimes it comes out, uh, you know, a lot vastly different. But mm-hmm. I think as time goes on, it, it's clear that uh, that there's people in the society that pick up on these little whatever it is pop culture things, and then they they run with them in their Yep. Sometimes it seems like they uh, coming up with the same ideas at the same time. When really it's that, hey, when they were fifteen, they heard you know the same, same song, right, and it right. or saw the same movie, and it affected them you know similarly. Mm-hmm. All right. Any any other final thoughts? Not really. You know, this this to me is an album that that needs to be listened to as an album, and in this day and age of the you know iPod and the single, that that it's increasingly hard. You know, more. Not harder, but it's it's more of a challenge to make yourself sit there and let a whole album play unless it's something that you're really into. And you know, I, this is one that I might actually see if I can pick up on vinyl. To, oh, nice, uh, nice. Because you know, there's a lot of vinyl floating around, and uh, you know, if you're if if you're listening to this and you're not knowledgeable about Alice Cooper beyond the uh, the big hits, you know, you could do a lot worse than than starting with with listening to, to killer. But, you know, like I said, I, I love those, uh, the early albums, definitely love it to death. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, once again, I'm going to actually have to go out and see if I can find the vinyl of the, the greatest hits from 74, <laughs> just for the, just for the cover. Who's got Groucho Marx, who was one of my, 
one of my patron saints on it. So well, there you go. You and I have something majorly in common. He's he's my hero too. Yeah, he's he's right up there. All right. Okay. So what we'll do, we'll go for yet another break, and then we'll come back for um, our second album of the show, which is Iggy and the Stooges' Raw Power. We'll be back. You're listening to Love That Album. the type of film that you just grabs your ball and the doesn't let go and if you don't have it will attach to your body just to grab it hold of them and not let go Good, I can't even be blown about these except that plain and simple he's a take a strap on up the ass I don't care don't sit through this movie wasting my time with this inept stupid boring unfunny annoying dull brainless Stupid, effortless, pointless, useless movie. I hated this movie. This is an F, a complete F. But I don't even think F is good enough for this piece of. Shit. This is, this is a fucking failure. Splendid. Go to filmraves at lipson.com, freakinawesomenetwork.com, or go to iTunes and search Justin Oberholzer's Filmrave and subscribe. Cheerio. Welcome back. Love that album, episode 53. Eric and Ann Arbor, Morris here in Melbourne. We're talking Alice Cooper and Iggy and the Stooges' Raw Power. Well, actually, I should say we've just spoken about Alice Cooper, but before we go into uh, Raw Power, Eric, you wanted to um, make an interesting segue. So uh, I'm just looking at the wiki page here about uh, Killer, which we just got done talking about. And it notes at the bottom that, you know, Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols and Public Image Limited is, is a big fan of, of the record. That uh, Ted Kennedy's frontman, Jello Biafra, or I should say the original frontman, has covered the, the song Halo of Flies. That uh, Mojo Nixon and Skid Roper, who were kind of the, kind of the, one of the great 80s, like, folk blues comedy acts, definitely, they covered Be My Lover. Mm. Um, and, you know, obviously Under My Wheels has been covered and, you know, by bands like Guns N' Roses, among others. But obviously, uh, this era of Alice Cooper was highly influential on what would come with, you know, late 70s punk and then 80s, you know, hair metal or whatever you want to call it, blues metal. And then in the 90s, of course, you get Marilyn Manson, who who was very upfront about the fact that Alice Cooper was his, uh, his big inspiration. And also Rob Zombie is definitely a, a Cooper fan. And they've recorded together. And uh, just as as Alice Cooper and his records were influential on 
the uh, the the music that would come and generally speaking with punk 80s metal 90s alternative those all started as underground phenomenon and then to different degrees of success became uh, mainstream that uh, the next album we're talking about Iggy and the Stooges raw power from 1973 was also very much an influential record and also has had its uh, its songs very much covered by a whole host of, of uh, artists and different styles and to this day it was one of those records that you just hope kids in far-flung parts of the world or down the street who are uh, not fitting in are discovering this record somehow and knowing that uh, hey you know there's more to the world and more to life than, than just what they're selling you mm-hmm. exactly and uh, I would I would say that, that for me for me real quickly that uh, yeah, sure. when, I, when I look at Alice and Iggy I see Alice as being like the horror film like the, the classic Hollywood um, you know supernatural we're telling you a story that's that's maybe an allegory about society whereas Iggy and the Stooges are about crime they're about falling they're about you know the the low points and that it's that, you know that whereas Alice is singing uh, you know this kind of make-believe fantasy horror that that Iggy and the Stooges were about the real horror of the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I read um, many years ago the uh, Who biography before I get old, and there was a start. I, I know this is a bit of a digression, but it sort of relates to that in a way. Uh, and it told the story about how um, uh, the Stones had been arrested, I think, on some narcotics charge, and uh, the Who were going to, um, were offering to uh, record. Uh, Rolling Stones singles one at a time uh, and raise money for their bail or, or at least to keep the Stones in the public memory until they got released and you know Mick Jagger went and laughed at Pete and said yeah yeah good on you Pete thanks for that when they when they got out and the book made the case that you know, the Who were the Humphrey Bogart school of tough but the Stones were the real thing and sort of it's an interesting comparison you know Alice Doing, telling stories about horror and Iggy and the students with real life crime. So, yeah. First thing that anyway, sorry, yeah, so um, so you brought this album uh, to the show. So, uh, basically, okay, so we. This album, this came after the Stooges had really, in a way, formally broken up. Yes. And this was. Well, I know you wouldn't necessarily call it Lazarus, but circumstances, you know, Iggy had uh, found his new best friend in James Williamson, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the Ashton brothers were, you know, I, I think particularly, I guess, Ron had, was, you know, quite insanely jealous of that fact of it. But, you know, he went over to England to uh, follow David Bowie, and Bowie was very interested in Iggy, and it, uh, he brings James Williamson over on Bowie's expense account, and uh, they audition musicians who can't fit in for the next album and James says you know what I know two good musicians who will perfectly fit in they're the Ashton mm-hmm. brothers so there you go the, the reformation of the Stooges but this album is very 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 different from the Stooges and Funhouse so yes. is it is it that difference that attracts you in this being your favorite Stooges album or is is it stylistically something that you're more attracted to or are the themes what was it that drew you to raw power? So I, I don't remember exactly when I and 
and in what order I picked up the Stooges albums. But what draws me to Raw Power quite simply is uh, the overdriven, in-your-face, you know, rawness of it, really. And also the, um, it, you know, basically it's got my favorite songs by by Iggy from this era. Um, you know, I, I, I love the Stooges record, I love the Funhouse record, but there's something about, you know, this record that it just pushes my buttons correctly and it's you know it, it's a lot of ways much more of the blueprint of punk rock to come than the the earlier stuff whereas yeah, I'd, I'd agree i'd agree with that that it 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 strips down a lot of um a lot of the elements from from the earlier records and there's this kind of uh this kind of pretty ugly pretty slash ugly kind of juxtaposition where you have this, this you know these beautiful melodies or, or crooning and then you have this this kind of ugly in your face primal uh, thumping sound now that being said at this point probably my very favorite song by by the Stooges is uh, we will fall which is not on this record right but on the first one yep. yeah but, but running a close second is you know search and destroy and raw power uh, and then I absolutely love Give Me Danger. That's that's it's maybe my you know, that's right up there with one to me one of the greatest songs ever written. The other thing is that you can read these songs in so many different ways. You can read them as being about sex, you can read them as being about drugs, you can read them as about uh you know, uh, once again, Vietnam. I mean Vietnam Search and I, I don't, destroy I, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't under, I don't know that you can cannot separate the you know the mental thought and the zeitgeist of this time period, having come from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and and you know divorce it from Vietnam and the draft and the horrors of uh, you know what what young people were dealing with, at least in their mind. Because to be honest, probably the more, most horrific you know warfare in American history was the American Civil War, and World War II was no cakewalk either. But you know the. Definitely, there was the, the thought that, that what was going on in Vietnam was just beyond the pale, which is you know maybe a different argument, and, and maybe it's it's uh, you know largely about the fact that, that the people coming back from Vietnam felt much more free to talk about the horrors, whereas the you know World War II generation just wanted to get on with a lot of things. But yeah, so search and destroy, obviously that's uh, you know that's military lingo. Give me danger. You can read that as being about anything that you're situation you're in where, you're, where your senses are heightened um you know uh raw power death trip i mean all of that stuff is really can be read that way mm-hmm. and th- there's also a, you know there's this great not overuse but appropriate use of kind of uh, pulp fiction tropes and lyrics and you know uh references in the music you know uh Raw Power says, you know, dance to the beat of the living dead. And you're like, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, this, this is not the monster mash. This is, <laughs> this is the, you know, this, this is the end of the world coming here, folks. Yeah, yeah. And oh, well, the, the album certainly does sound apocalyptic. But then again, you, your, your case of, uh, of already mentioning We Will Fall from the first album, that yeah. sounds very apocalyptic too. Definitely. And, uh, you know, I, and I, I mentioned earlier that... Uh, both of these albums feature a snake on, on the cover, and I think I even referred to Iggy as a serpent, as in, uh, you know, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Right. And, uh, 
You know, uh, another band from the same time period that was playing with a lot of these same sounds and imagery was Blue Oyster Cult, and they have that great song, This Ain't the Summer of Love. You know, that, and, you know, Alice Cooper famously uh, in that big documentary on rock and roll of, this, of the hippie era said, you know, people just got a little tired of peace and love, man. But, you know, Iggy is the, the real deal. He's, he's on the cover of this record just looking like, you know, he's, you know, it's just an image of him shot from below. He's, you can kind of see some kind of like gold snakeskin-ish pants on him. He's, you know, he's glammed up. He looks like, you know, a Bowie star child. And he's looking off into the distance like he's some creature standing on his hind legs looking out to the, the future to see what's coming. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's just so many things about this, this record. And, and it's, it's the music and it's the sounds and it's the it's the juxtaposition of those sounds because you know you go from this this massively overdriven you know search and destroy that's right in your face and then just when you think it can't get any more intense you get your those guitar face, lines your pretty face is going well, to hell yeah well, you get these guitar lines that just jump out and then it goes into give me danger yeah, yeah. your pretty face is going to hell and penetration it's just it's primal but at the same time there's there's beauty in it well it's interesting you mentioned about you know the, um, the harsh, the ugliness, and the beauty, and I think penetration is a very good example of that because uh, you know you've got this sort of ugly, raw guitar, hard rock sound, and in the midst of that, you've got this little celeste or little xylophone that's playing this little riff over and over throughout yep. the whole song, and you know within within a big patch of dirt is going to grow this little flower, and that's um, yeah, I just the first time I heard that because as I said I've only been listening to this album now since you know you recommended it yeah for the show so you know I've listened to it lots and I've sort of you know been trying to well, what, what are the bits that stand out at me and I, I laughed the first time I, I heard that which is you know, I don't know if that was uh, uh, their intention or not but I just thought oh, wow that's that's just that's way funny you know, just hearing hearing that does that belong here yes it really does well this is this is the whole tie into Alice as well there's definitely a sense of humor. Your pretty face is going to hell. It's, it's like this noisy blues song that, you know, I talked earlier about Iggy seeing Jim Morrison sing in a falsetto. Your pretty face is going to hell. He's singing in this, like, fake tough guy kind of meathead, you know, uh, almost bluesy kind of, kind of a voice that, you know, I can't take that seriously at all. He's, you know, he's putting on, he's putting on another character here. Definitely. But he's, then, mind you, I mean, but that's always been the Iggy character. Even yes. though, even though the first two albums, I, I'll confess, I probably have more of a. Um, uh, as much as I love this album, I really do. Uh, I, I think I still stick with uh, the first two albums. I mean, probably. I know a lot of people will say, well, the competition is between Funhouse and Raw Power, but for me, I think still probably the. Um, the, the structure of uh, the first album is it, it's real that really one is my favorite but I, yeah look i love them all i i just wanted to sort of um interject here i was having a conversation with uh, our good friend and compatriot mr tim merrill uh, saying that you know we we're going to cover this this record and he said to me well let me tell you about my opinion uh, and which which is one of so like funhouse is his favorite he said look you know a good album like raw power is the equivalent of sexual foreplay, but Funhouse is wild and uninhibited fucking. Uh, I, did I get that right, Tim? Please call me, <laughs> call me and tell me. And 
and I, I went back and had a listen to it in that context, and there's so much of Iggy on that on that album going. And, and of course, you got LA Blues at the end of the album, and I'm thinking, oh my God, he's right. I mean, it, it sounds like you know, um, the rock equivalent of Cornette Coleman. Then it's, it's just this wild, uninhibited noise. I'm thinking, well, you know. Uh, it, it'd be the uh, the harshest of porno songs with, with, well, that, with that song as the soundtrack to it. Funhouse is, is definitely the more more you know freeform jazz in, influenced record. Right. Where to me this this you know listening to it again for for this more times, it's definitely the blues record. You know this is the this is the, the oh, primal. Yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, rock powers that. I mean, I I, I once read somebody say. Would you have loved to have heard John Lee Hooker cover Search and Destroy? Can you, can you just <laughs> imagine John, John Lee Hooker going, I'm the world's forgotten boy, you know? Or I'm the street-walking cheetah with a height full of napalm. Oh, I'd actually, I'd love sure. to hear someone like Tom Waits or somebody with that kind of gravelly, slow voice cover that. Absolutely, I mean, that absolutely. Well, I mean, you, know, you never know. I mean, if, if Silver and Gold do their next uh, karaoke competition for, for one of these songs, then uh, Tom Waits might be persuaded. <laughs> you, you never know. I, I, I might be able to get in contact with him. Um, so where and, we're you going. know, there's also this really great uh, goth version of Raw Power out there by the band Shadow Project that's it's really slow and doing. I know it's so good. Just. I, I, I wanted to. Um, I, I, what I've got done here is I've got to make two lists, mm-hmm. and because I, I don't feel the need to do this for every album, but that, that we cover on the show. But I thought it was appropriate, and I'll be. I'll openly admit that I've been selective in writing this list, but it still roughly gives you an idea of the world that Raw Power was born into. And, um, okay, so you know, one thing I got from the biography is one thing that uh, the Stooges maybe had in common with uh, a group like Big Star is that they were with a company that just didn't know what to do with them, and they heard Raw Power and thought you know, Clive Davis would have had a heart attack. Yeah. What is this? I don't know what to do with it. Um, so the albums that came out in that year were albums like Dark Side of the Moon, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, The Everyman by Jackson Brown, and hold that thought about Jackson Brown, I'll come back to him in a second. Uh, Roxy Music's For Your Pleasure, Red Rose Speedway by Winnie's, Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions, and... Uh, Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. I mean, okay, I, I'm sure that you could equally come up with a list of other albums that show that Raw Power was maybe not isolated, at least in a hard rock sort of vein, but that's by and large, these are the successful albums of 1973, and you, you could sort of see, maybe not empathise, but you could sort of see why it was that Clive Davis and... Joe Public, we're not sort of going to gravitate that much towards uh, towards War Power because this is where their head was at. They were listening to Cat mm-hmm. Stevens, they were listening to Jackson Brown, the, sing- the singer-songwriters you were talking about before. And I'm not saying you know they're better or worse or, or or whatever, but it's just that was a lot of the environment that was going on. And it seems that the excitement, the raw power, as you will, of the excitement of artists from uh, rock and roll's early days, it, it digressed, it had gone somewhere different. 
And this leads me into my second list. So, back in 2007, um, once once every, you know, once a year or something like that, well, maybe twice a year, I'll buy myself a copy of Mojo or Uncut Magazine as a bit of an indulgence, because I, you know, it gets to be a bit pricey, at least for the, for the imported editions yeah. that we get here. Uh, and usually I'll, but unless there's a really, really brilliant article that I know I want to read, I'll usually more often than not base it on what the cover CD will be. And in 2007, I think in the April issue, there was a free CD that came with uh, with that issue called Scooge's Jukebox. And they got Iggy to program yeah. his list of songs. And here's a list of some of the songs that he programmed. Uh, Surfing Bird by The Trashmen. Tootie Fruity by Little Richard, Breathless by Jerry Lee Lewis, Moaning at Midnight by Howling Wolf, Rumble by Link Ray, uh, the aforementioned John Lee Hooker doing Drugstore Woman, and Junior Kimbra doing Crawling King Snake. This is the sort of thing, this is Iggy's territory. This is the Stooges' yeah. territory. Raw power might sound, okay, it's a lot, um, uh, it's a lot more intense and all, in, in terms of sound and a lot more loud, but it is influenced, there's no doubt. It, it, these songs speak to Iggy. This is what he was was following. And there, there are other examples from that CD. In, in the article, it also mentioned a bunch of songs that didn't get onto the CD for time limitations or copyright limitations. But basically, this dictates what Iggy and the Stooges were all about all along and it's it's a strange juxtaposition where you say that um, an album like Raw Power or the, even the albums that came before were were being progressive in their outlook they were going to different places and yet were very loyal to the roots of rock and roll more so than a whole lot of other bands uh, of the day that were sort of you know doing uh, once you know, they're experimenting in their own way but they found that they could the Stooges found that they could be both be progressive and faithful to their roots and, and I just mm-hmm. I just found that an interesting uh, juxtaposition there. yeah going going back to your list uh, you know sure. when, when people people talk about that kind of stuff my answer is which of those records is selling today which of those records do you hear kids talking about today uh, a good chunk of them really uh, how's well Maybe not Houses of the Whole. Oh, I've, I've written that down on my list. I don't think I mentioned it. But Dark Side of the Moon. That's yeah, that's definitely. Still, that's still selling. Um, uh, uh, well, maybe to an extent, Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. I imagine. Uh, See, I, I never hear anything about that. Was Stevie Wonder? It's always uh, it's always like compilation stuff or. Look, I, I still think that some people will go for that right. know, early quartet of you know brilliant early '70s albums, you know, more so than maybe whatever he was doing in the '60s, and certainly whatever he did, you know, post um, uh, Master Blast. What was the album? Um, uh, well, anyway, the, the one, the, the early one from the, yeah. one from the early '80s. Uh, so, but yeah, I think those early quartet albums still get uh, a heap of respect. And okay, maybe it might not be. Sold as you know, in millions anymore, but I think they still mm-hmm. do get referred to. But I see the point where you're coming from, where you know, raw power might have started out with no one buying it, but people are still buying it today. Yeah, and it, it, it's that case that of what happened with the Ramones and so many other bands is that they were never appreciated in their time, but those records get reissued, those records are still in print, where the best sellers of, of that, that era sometimes have faded away. And, and you know, I just, I just took a real quick look here. 
at what else was released in 1973. Okay. You you get uh, Tyranny and, and Mutations by Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, you get Billion Dollar Babies by Alice Cooper. I knew you were gonna, you could come up with a list that would isolate uh, the singer-songwriter choices. You, you get uh, Hawkwind's Space Ritual, and you also get, very importantly, the New York Dolls self-titled album. Okay. So, you know, uh, it, it's easy to look and, and see what was coming selling, but I, I truly believe no matter what record you're talking about, the the measure of a record is not how many how many units it sold that year, but how many people are still listening to it and embracing it a decade later. Definitely, definitely. I was more or less reading that list, not so much to sort of say about what was influential, but more what the people of 1973 yeah, I, were, were listening to. That was the, that was a general environment. These were these were the other. And what what is this? This um, who, who's who's the naughty schoolboy in, in the class who's making the trouble? Oh, it's it's young Iggy. Go to the back of the <laughs> class. You're making noise while these nice little children. You know, your Cat Stevens, James Taylor's go and create their nice music. Yeah, you know, I at that point. And, and you know, there's there's a schism between the the uh, the right now immediacy of something that that's being embraced and and that which is timeless or you know has a long lasting impact. And, and part of this is the the commercial and uh, financial needs of the music industry. And uh, you know, they were focused at this point in time, of course, in keeping the doors open and making money. But there was also a certain element of uh, artist development. You, you mentioned Houses of the Holy, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin was not a massive, the massive hit right out of the gate that we consider them to be now. Neither was uh, Bruce Springsteen or Blue Oyster Cult or any number of acts, you know, Queen, you know, they might have had a hit here or there, but they did not become the monster acts that they became later on in the, the late 70s and into the 80s. Well, there's infamous stories here about that Queen coming to Australia, I think, in 1974 for, I think, what was the Sunbury Festival venue in Victoria, and were booed off stage. Hence, it was like, I think, about, you know, oh, I don't know how many years later before um, uh, Freddie and co. sort of forgave us, or, you know, forgave the country and decided to come <laughs> to come back. But, uh, you know, there you go. Um, yeah. So, uh, what else? What else? What else? Um, so, basically, okay. So, oh yeah, that was the other point I was going to make. So, the version of the album that I went out and bought was, you know, well, the, the easy one to find, which was the Biggie Pop remix. So, give us a yeah. little bit of a, a history, because I actually haven't heard the original version, and no doubt you could heard both. So, give us a yeah. little history of that. So, so basically, uh, David Bowie mixed the original version, and uh, my understanding is that it was. Um, I'm trying to remember. It's been a while, so yeah, sure. There, there's been uh, there's been a lot of controversy about the mixing of the album and, and things that are overdriven and stuff that's pushed into the red versus stuff that's not. And uh, story has always been that the, the Iggy was not happy with Bowie's mixes, and. Uh, Neither were a lot of the fans, and in fact, there was uh, there was Bomp Records put out what they called Rough Power in 1993, which was uh, which was mixed differently in an attempt to uh, to give the the album more of, of what what the band had intended or Iggy. Did. And then 1996, uh, Columbia Records let Iggy remix the entire album for release, and that's 
that's what I believe is currently in circulation. Yes. Um, oh, my I brother owned. It was also like a legacy edition. Um, the yeah. A friend of mine, Pat, who uh, works in a fine record store here in Melbourne, is uh, saying that I think the legacy edition has both the original David Bowie mix yes. and the uh, the Iggy remix. You know, and, and to, to be honest, I, you know, the whole the whole mix thing never really bothered me all that much. Um, I don't. I don't have a preference either way about about what when I listen to because I think the, uh, the that the strong the songs are strong enough that you can you can follow them uh, in either either or any of those yep. those mixes. Yep. Yep, sure. And I think that you're you know unless you're really somebody who's in tune to to uh, production, which I am generally not. Yep. Uh, you're really gonna. Not, not notice too much of a difference. I guess, look, I'm, but, I've always claimed that I'm not an audiophile, I'm a music fan. Um, mm-hmm. un- unless it's really, really, really dire sounding. And I'm not even going to... I guess, unless it lands in my lap, I'm not going to necessarily bother to search out the uh, original David Bowie mix. Yeah. Having having said that about not being so much of an audiophile, the first thing that hit me, and you've already gone and mentioned about the needle going into the red, and yet... Uh, so yeah, we we get plenty of over distortion on the um, uh, on the guitars and on Iggy's vocals on the, on this record, and you know that's you know, obviously going for the down and dirty yeah. sound that he wanted. And yet, one thing that I noticed in absence, which uh, I don't know, I mean, it doesn't bother me so much now, but it did bother me when I first listened to it. You get this very very clean drum sound from Rock Action, aka yeah. Scott Ashton, on the first two albums. And he's way down in the mix, and I'm thinking for a hard rock record, you know, you should be able to hear that rhythm section. It should be that those, the drums, if not if they're not at least you know front and center in the mix, at least they should be equal with what else mm-hmm. is going on. And it's it really is sort of drowned out by the guitar. And I, I think yeah. And you know what? Part of me was thinking that was to its detriment. And I wanted to make the point that like when we've already gone and mentioned uh, the album opener, Search and Destroy. And I was watching on YouTube, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, a video of uh, you know, the, the Stooges. I, I can't remember, was it a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or something? Uh, something in more recent years of okay. uh, the band playing. And they were doing Search and Destroy, and it sounded absolutely, because of the mix for television, it sounded clean mm-hmm. and perfect and precise and completely wrong. I mean, I don't know, maybe if I was in the audience, it would have been exciting, but just watching this on YouTube, or I imagine watching it on television back in the day, um, you would have heard it as they would have mixed it in the studio, because there's no way they were going to put it into the red, but everything was equally mixed and in its place, so I've, I've gone away from my initial perception of uh, how that song and indeed the rest of the album should sound, and now I think, well, I don't know, maybe it's just because I've listened to it you know, quite a number of times and that's yeah. what I'm used to, but I, I found look, you know, it's still a great song, and they're playing it perfectly well, but I now prefer to hear it like this, with you know, this not quite muddy recording, but mm-hmm. so, you know, with, with, the, with the drums sort of you know, very low down in, in the mix, because it, it sounds it sounds a lot more dirty. It really, and and this, that's what this album is. This, this is a dirty album. Well, a song like Search and Destroy, it really is it's about the vocals and the guitar. In you know, as much as I'm not a production guy. You know, if something that's really badly produced, you can usually pick up on that. But sure. my my advice to bands is always, always, always turn down the vocals, turn down the guitar, because because the drums and, and the bass get 
get muted so much of the time in uh, rock music, but in this case, I think it's appropriate because that, especially with Search and Destroy, that guitar is what drives the song. Not, not the bass, which is what should be driving most songs. A great bass line will carry you farther than, than you would believe. And, and uh, you know, for me, a lot of the music that I love was was uh, written by or constructed by the bass player, and there's a great bass line to drive everything. But it, you know, and, and like I said, in this case, to to me, the guitar being out front and providing that um, that that thrust, that driving. Uh, Stimulate, whatever you want to call it. That's that's what the song, one of the things that makes the song great. And then of course Iggy's vocals. And right. so I don't I don't I don't miss the fact that the, the the drums and the bass are kind of kind of born in the background, on, on especially that song. Well, it, but then it, you, it took for that contrast for me to realise that I didn't sort of appreciate that at first when I heard. All oh, right, this is how it could have been. Okay, I like how it is. But you know, at the same time, it goes from it goes from that to Give Me Danger, which is you know sounds almost like a you know, like a chimey jangle pop—not really pop, but like jangly, trance-like, you know, guitar ballad. And, and it's kind of a, kind of a jarring. We've got to be careful about that word ballad because you know it—it's it, got an acoustic guitar on it to give it pop. But this is this is not a ballad. This is the convention. Well, it's it's pruned and it's uh, you know it's slowed down and it's maybe a little bit more reflective and at the same time and this is one of the things that carries over from the earlier Stooges records is there's a certain trance-like um, you know world music kind of feel to a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. it's, it's not just simply you know the, the you know uh, the primitive garage rock kind of sound because there's definitely some uh, I don't know, what, what do you want to call it some uh, atmospheric and definitely some delicate touches in this record Right, well, we've already gone and mentioned about the uh, little celeste in, yeah. um, in uh, Penetration, but um, I, I, I think another touch that I really like, uh, which song was it? I think it might have, oh, I was in Raw Power, and this is something that they've actually already gone and done on uh, the first album, and now I want to be your dog. So you've got, they obviously had a fondness for playing a rhythmic riff, not a, not a musical riff per se, but like I'm going to the piano and playing that one high note riff all over raw power and yeah and i just once i I thought it was a really ingenious touch and you know to well if it worked once we can make it worth it work a a second time and it's once again what you were speaking about earlier on about um beauty coming out of ugliness and you know generally because it's a guitar driven album but you know for me you know the, the Piano is an instrument of beauty. I mean, there's not any piano playing in the um, conventional sense. It's just that one note, but it's this little contrast. All right, you think we've driven everything and we've gone everything into overdrive with the guitar and with Iggy being the wild man and, and you know, uh, Ron and Scott Ashton you know, keeping everything down and really yeah. rocking on the on the rhythm section. But we're going to include this little piano bit just to give it a nice little touch of spice, a nice little touch of flavour. So, um, yeah, I, I, little things like that really, really impressed me. But um, overall, I just found this you know, a really exciting slab of, of music. And, and, you know, shame on me for not having picked up on it before. But thank you so much for throwing it my no way. No problem. Um, so the other song I, I was talking about before about you know, being 
true to the roots. And I think Shake Appeal sounds like, you know, if, if Eddie Cochran had been around to make a record in 1973 and he was going to make oh, yeah. it with a hard rock band, Shake Appeal, it, it sounds like an Eddie Cochran song. It does. It de- definitely sounds like a like a 50s pop song. Definitely. It, it definitely definitely has got that feeling. And, it, you know, it, it, it fits with the rest of the material, too. And that's, that's another thing I like about this record is that you have these various songs of, uh, you know, with different, even some different styles and some different different vocal styles, but they all fit together. There's something that, that makes them cohesive. Yep. And, and definitely Shake Appeal is, is definitely, uh, you know, that could have been a single in, in a different era, oh, probably a later 100%. era. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know what it was like where you are, but when alternative radio started in in uh, North America in the early 90s uh, and there wasn't a whole lot of records for them to, to pull from we would occasionally hear like a Ramon song or a Stooges song get thrown into the rotation just to you know just so they could fill out the format and sometimes I wonder if you know something like Shake Appeal could could have really become a, a later day hit because of being included in uh, you know on a playlist somewhere like that and I think it, or thrown into a film somewhere yeah, <laughs> I mean that—that that was happening for a lot of artists, wasn't it? You know, they'd find yeah, that well, um, some some director would be uh, a fan of some underappreciated artist, throw it into a film, and next thing you know, they've got a message. That's what happened to Iggy with Lust for Life. I mean, Lust for Life comes, of course, four, of course, yeah, 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 comes absolutely. three, four years later, and you know, it gets thrown into Train Spotting. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and he goes and makes a new film clip for it and everything. Oh yeah. Um. All right. Anything else that you want to make mention of specifically to, to the album? To the to the album, no. But or, or, I, to, just, or to Stooges and Jump. Just uh, so this comes out, it doesn't do so well, and then it gets kind of mixed reviews. It's been retroactively, you know, noted as one of the great. And then once again, you look and you see who was inspired by it. You know, you get the Dictators, you get the Ramones, you get. The Dead Boys, and if people don't know the Dead Boys, you got to check out uh, Young, Loud, and Snotty, which is almost an, an answer to this record. It's from three, four years later, a band from Cleveland, Ohio, that went to New York City, heavily, heavily influenced by uh, by Rob Power. Mm-hmm. And then you know it, it continues to ripple to this day. I mean, there there are young people and musicians that are discovering this record over and over. And I would say that. The other thing is that this is maybe their more accessible record as far as uh, new listeners who are more in, more attuned or accustomed to like a three-minute pop song or uh, you know a, a hard rock song that speaks to them. Where you know the earlier albums are definitely more jazzy and more freeform and uh, not necessarily, in my mind at least, not necessarily as accessible to pop audiences. Well, I don't know. I. I... I tend to think that um, you know, because you've got songs like you know, "Now I Want to Be Your Dog," which yeah. uh, which is very poppy, and "1969" uh, with that great Bo Diddley beat. I mean, I, yeah, I, I I think there are definitely they they have jazz tinges in them, but with, but they're not they're not jazz albums. It just goes to show oh, no. we can we're, we're, it's, the jazz there is used like the uh, the little instrumentation bits that I mentioned with, with this album to add a touch of spice rather than necessarily being uh, a genre unto itself, although once again, LA blues 
Uh, so, um, it is, is, you know, it's anyone's guess what. Uh, people you know, listening to that for the first time back in you know, the early 70s. But, um, yeah, I mean, all these albums are a really wild, exciting ride. One last thing I, I wanted to mention. Um, this is not so much, this is nothing to do with raw power, but uh, in reading, I think, in one of the books, it made mention that. Um, Okay, so we all know that uh, John Cale was uh, in a producer's chair on the first album. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Iggy long denied that he did anything apart from take a check and go out for lunch. Uh, but you know, there, there seems to be a lot of, um, I don't know, maybe not evidence, but there seems to be you know, for, for a lot of the writers will say, no, actually, he did have an influence on that more than he's giving him credit for. And Don Gallucci. Uh, who was the producer of Funhouse. But the interesting thing that I didn't know was that Don Gallucci was not the originally suggested producer for mm. that second album. Uh, Jacques Holtzman, the uh, president of, um, of Electra Records, wanted Jackson Brown. Now, can wow. you imagine what sort of album Funhouse would have been if Jackson Brown had been at the uh, producer's chair? It's just... Well, mind mind blowing to think. Did, had you heard of that? I, I think I've seen that somewhere in passing. Yeah. But it, it, yeah, that just I don't know. <laughs> I, I'll be honest, I'm not that familiar with Jackson Brown. I think uh, most of my knowledge of him has to do with his, his relationship with the Eagles. And uh, you know, I, I do know that he was like the, the you know navel gazing singer songwriter. At least that's the popular narrative. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. I mean, look, I, I, I'm no great fan. I mean, I guess I've got a healthy respect for him, but it's not he's not someone who I'd have um, I've, I've really got anything of in my collection. But I've heard enough songs to know that uh, Jackson Brown and the Stooges is, would have been a very, very odd mixture, to say the least. Well, that there are divergence in, in the, the musical landscape of, of the generation. I mean, one, one side's going... Jackson Brown's going to the singer-songwriter, you know, me generation thing, whereas Iggy and the Stooges are, are going towards, and Iggy eventually is going towards, hey, everything's not okay, and you know, um, you know, the, the world is falling apart, and you know, we are we are ignoring it. Whereas, I mean, that, maybe that's just my perception, because you know, from here, Iggy goes, he stays with David Bowie, but he goes solo basically. Yep. And he and he and Bowie go to Berlin, and you know they struggle with heroin, and they have all of those things going on. And uh, I don't know. Sometimes though, when you when you have those those people that are on two different tracks, they can you know cause friction, and something great will come out of it. A lot well, of times, something tr- crap I mean, this, comes out of it too. Well, th- this album, I, I guess, now that you make the point, this album does not like sound like it's the sort of thing that you would have associated with David Bowie. So mm-hmm. um, I, I guess, yeah, that that is a very good call. Uh, but it, it did make me um, it did make me giggle a bit. I've got to confess when I when I read that. All right. Well, I think that um, we've we've gone and uh, spoken all we can about uh, Iggy and the Stooges' Raw Power album. So um, that pretty much is the show. As I like to do at the end of a program, I like to uh, go through the uh, podcast Hall of Fame. I'll go through it uh, fairly quickly. Uh, Paleo Cinema and Martian Driving Podcast. Uh, hosted by Terry Frost, and while we've been talking, uh, I've seen a couple of posts go on Facebook that Terry has released one episode of each in the one day. Normally, he spreads them out two weeks apart, but we have a new Paleo Cinema and a new Martian Drive-In podcast, so uh, 
check him out if you have not already done so. Silver and Gold, hosted by uh, uh, Pickle Loaf and Dr. Zom. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Better in the Dark, the film podcast. Film Rave by Justin Oberholzer. The Trashy Trio, which is it's only you know, quite still in early days, but I'm getting a lot of enjoyment out of that. And even though I'm not a comics guy, I've really been finding fascinating listening to Double Page Spread, hosted by uh, Trashy Trio co-host Wendy Freeman. And she's going to be on Love That Album in a few weeks, so um, uh, more about that as we get closer to that episode. Uh, sitting in a bar in Adelaide, hosted by my very, very good friend Michael Persh, who I may be visiting in Adelaide next uh, March. Uh, I'll hopefully be able to do that. Uh, the List Music Podcast, uh, with our good friends Ricardo, Jenny and Juan. No more VK, I'm so sad. All-time top ten with Ben Eisen, and uh, this weekend's episode, although it'll be a couple of weeks down the track before you hear this, but the one, as we record, has been all-time top ten monkeys songs, and I've had a lot of enjoyment listening to that. Soda Jerker on songwriting, hosted by Simon and Brian, doing a wonderful job. Inside Outcast, Evil Dave, and Dr. Brandy, sexy voice, PhD. And you heard it on the last episode, even though it hasn't come out yet, but uh, it's all looking good for... um, John Ross to be starting up the uh, Feed My Ears podcast. Uh, it's, up until now, it's just been a Facebook page where people discuss uh, their favourite music and make recommendations, but it looks like uh, John and Nathan and I can't remember who else, one of the guy, will be doing um, uh, Feed My Ears, the podcast. So uh, fingers crossed that that comes out very, very soon. Looking very much forward to hearing that. John is uh, very, very highly articulate and and I've always enjoyed having him on on the Love That Album, so I look forward to uh, hearing him uh, talk about a whole range of music. That'll be great. And one more podcast that I've uh, been getting into of late. I've only listened to a few episodes. I haven't sort of delved into the whole back catalogue. And I know this is one that you're going to want to uh, listen to. You're going to want to check out, Eric. It's called Fab Four Free For All. It's a Beatles discussion podcast. Um, <laughs> I'll be right on that. I, I figured you might. Uh, but no, seriously, I, I've really, really been enjoying it. They've been, um, you, you would think, you know, I mean, even me as a diehard Beatles fan would have sort of thought, well, how long can that last? But, you know, 60 episodes in, and, and I mean, admittedly, I've only sort of like caught a few, but they go in a lot of detail, and for me as a Beatles fan, interesting detail. So that's a great show. And I know that there's a few Beatles podcasts out there, but this is the one I've discovered. So um, if you're a Beatles fan, uh, and it's not just Beatles, it's, you know, solo material and any, or, or talking, I think they've got an episode coming up if it hasn't already been released with Mark Lewison, who's um, probably uh, one of their greatest, uh, not biographers, but uh, analysts he's um he wrote a great book about um uh details everything every day in the studio and what they accomplish and once again even if you're not a beatles fan it was just really fascinating to see their work ethic and what they got accomplished and uh the level of experimentation that they did and mark lewis is um, a really excellent writer so i'd look forward to uh hearing their interview with him so um any podcast that you uh, wish to uh bring up i know outside the cinema anything you want to talk about uh, actually, I have wrapped up my uh, my segment for Outside the Cinema. It's just, I did it for two years, and I was uh, just feeling like I needed to make some changes. Oh. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm, I'm still listening to this, the show, and I'm still uh, sending feedback and whatnot, but okay. no longer going to have my music segment. 
Well, but you pretty hang much on, hang, hang on. You're, you're not. Hang on. This is not your way of saying, uh, Morris. I need to make some changes. No, 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 no. It's not at all. Not Good. at all. Good. This Good. was. Uh, there was a lot of lot of the things that went into this. I just, you know, it, it was like a weekly grind in some ways to to get it out. Sure. And I would, like I said, it's needed a, a break. But you, I'm still going to be doing the uh, album that I love segment. Good, good, good. I think the fact uh, that you sort of do it every three weeks means that you, you get, yeah. you, know, you get enough time to. Um, well, you know, also there's, you know, outside the cinema, I was trying to keep it down under three minutes, and I don't know. Any, there was, like I said, that went on that I just decided that it was time to uh, pull the plug on that one. Um, I was actually just on an episode of the List Music podcast that was uh, Juan and Evil Dave and myself talking about goth music that's going to be coming out. Oh, some nice. point. They've, been, they've been talking about that for some while that they were going to do a goth <laughs> yeah. episode. And other than that, I, I really haven't picked up anything new of note. I mean, pretty much uh, listening to the same things that uh, that you already mentioned that uh, in the rest of our little community listens to. So. Okay honestly don't really have enough time to, to get through everything else so it's it's a bit hard but you know I, I i find that my um morning and afternoon train trips to and from work are made far more enjoyable by uh the the, the range of podcasts and you know I, i'd be a lie if i said i listen to every one of these podcasts every week but um yeah. they but they but a good chunk of them certainly do get um, to use a silver and gold vernacular, they do go through my ear holes, and uh, it really, you know, train travel—it's the great way to do it. And you know, before I go to bed at night, just listening. Yeah, it's, I, it's it's wonderful. I listen on my commute, and then uh, you know, my lunch periods and that kind of stuff. So, to so, get through as much as I can. Well, I know I mention these shows on in every episode, but if you've not caught up with um, with any of them, I really, really urge you to do so. I mean, chances are good. A good chunk of you are familiar with most or, or maybe even all of these shows, but um, uh, if there's anything that you've heard in there that sounds even remotely interesting, I urge you to go check them out, not just because you know, they're good supporters of my show and I, you know, I like to reciprocate, but really these are genuinely great shows that, um, that give me a lot of pleasure and, and hopefully will do you too. All right, well, Eric... Uh, I, it's it's wonderful, you know, as I said, 53 episodes in, and you've been part of the Shooting the Shit crew, and we will be um, yep. talking again in uh, December to do our uh, year-end wrap-up of favourite um, 2013 albums and favourite discoveries of 2013. Mm-hmm. So I, I haven't formally gone in and uh, spoken to any of the rest of the crew yet, but... I don't think that wild horses could uh, keep them away from doing <laughs> doing that. Well, uh, there's, uh, it, it was a lot of fun doing that last year, and um, uh, I, I look forward to doing it. So probably sometime in uh, December we'll be recording that one. So get your list ready. Matt, thank you very much for being uh, a part Not of a uh, this episode. Had absolutely a, a, a shitload of fun talking about these albums. It's great. And before we go, yes, I should make mention what the next episode is going to be. Love that album, episode 54. Another first timer for the program been wanting to we've been talking about doing this episode for over a year i think maybe august last year it's um if you're on the facebook groups then you might know the name of uh bernard stickwell bernie sticky good friend of uh, jason statham i believe and um he's uh he, he um he's uh from bath in england and um he basically put me onto an album last year that is now, it's never far from the CD player or the iPod. I uh, absolutely love it. A guy called Mark Eitzel, 
formerly of a band called the American Music Club, and we're going to discuss his album, 60 Watt Silver Lining. He's actually released a new album, I think it was early this year, or was it late last year, called Don't Be a Stranger. Uh, and I would have quite happily covered that one, but Sticky said, um, said no, no, 60 Watt Silver Lining was his favourite. So I thought, okay, we'll go for that one. And as its partner, another album that uh, we both really were very excited about its release in, once again, I think in about August or September of last year, by uh, British songwriter Bill Fay. Life is People is the name of the uh, newish Bill Fay album. And we're not only going to discuss the album, but there's a really fascinating story behind how the album came into being. I, I guess in some ways Bill Fay was sort of like the uh, J.D. Salinger of uh, the music world. He recorded you know, these two really perfect albums, you know, which no, not many people had heard. And it was probably, and then just sort of disappeared, and no one expected to hear from him again. The story about how he came to record this album, I think, is a fascinating one. So, uh, Bernie Sticky and I will be talking about that and the Mark Eitzel album on Love That Album, episode 54. I hope you can join us for that. Uh, So, I think with that, I will say farewell, and once again, thank you, Eric, for being part of it. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Look forward to speaking to you again on uh, Shooting the Shit in a few weeks. All right. Cheers, everyone. Thanks for joining us. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.